first reading is from Psalm 44. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Though through you we push back our enemies, through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow, my sword, my sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep, and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The peoples shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to our covenant, to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. reading is from Romans chapter 8 verses 26 to 39. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquer conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Andrea. And if you weren't aware, uh, Andrea is one of our new deacons, as is Helen, who is lurking at the back. So if you don't know who they are and you haven't said hello to them yet, then make sure you do at the end of the service. So, the book of Romans, Paul, it's basically a lot of letters. Has anyone written a letter recently? You, can you don't have to speak. I know speaking is scary, but you can raise a hand. Has anyone actually written? Yeah, there's half a wave. Yeah, brief indications of letter writing. Yeah, perhaps a lengthy email. Might be more. Ha I mean, I seem to spend my life sending lengthy emails. Um, WhatsApp message. Everyone familiar with WhatsApp, the instant messaging app on your phone that you can use across the internet? I'm not being paid by WhatsApp to plug that, by the way. Um, but that seems to be a, like the easiest way at the moment to communicate, especially if you travel abroad a lot. So at a friend's wedding earlier in the week, uh, we learned that she had actually informed her family of her engagement via WhatsApp. I think I would have been shot if I'd have done that. It seems that the art of letter writing uh, is, for many of us, a forgotten art, except perhaps for my nana, who will often write to me a letter to say thank you for giving her a phone call. I appreciate it. It's pushed to the side and replaced with faster, more immediate forms of communication, which can keep us up to date with information as and when it's fresh off the press as opposed to waiting for a longer, more detailed report of a number of happenings or months. Paul's letters, the ones which we can be almost certain were written by him, so two years of studying for my MA and in biblical studies, and that's about as certain as I think I'm ever going to get with anything, almost certain, served very specific purposes. Whether they were preparing communities of believers for his arrival, criticizing and correcting those who had misunderstood his unique teachings, or simple soapbox opportunities for Paul to preach, and boy did he love a soapbox opportunity, far and wide without necessitating another visit. I mean, that's kind of what we do with social media now, isn't it? It's sort of this instant communication, a brief text message, a comment on someone's photo on Facebook, or even, if you have to, a hasty phone call if you know you can get off the phone quickly. I think that's sometimes why we can actually misappropriate Paul's work. It's not to say it doesn't have incredible value in our journey to better know and understand God through the work of Christ and the Spirit. But 2,000 years from now, 
will someone pay as much attention to my WhatsApp message with my three friends? Now, I'm not likening myself to Paul in any respect there, but it does seem unlikely because of the sheer volume of such discussions and similar content. I don't know if you spend much time on the internet, but there is sheer volumes of online discussion. The Guardian will post an article, and there are two, three, four hundred comments. People will have an abundance of time for this short, snappy communication. Paul's work, and those who subsequently imitated his style using his name, does stand unique in the time of the letter and has survived to today. The challenging part for us is what on earth we do that do with something that is millennia old and written in a context with similarities, but mostly vastly different to where we are today. Whilst acknowledging that sometimes we all say things that we might later want to rethink. I mean, is it okay to say that if Paul were transported as he were then to write here, right now, that I'd probably like to sit down with him and have a chat about some of his points that I disagree with. Anyway, Paul's magnum opus, the epistle to the Romans, is our focus for the next few weeks of this so-called British summertime. It is perhaps his most reputable piece of work and the only one in which many Christians base their faith upon. It is no surprise then, when we actually dig a little deeper into the faith of many modern-day Christians, we are perhaps to find that they are more accurately resemble, uh, resemble Paulians than the followers of Christ. But that is probably another sermon for another day. The contemporary theologian, N.T. Wright, who has written prolifically on both the New Testament and Paul, and whom I am surprised to find myself quoting, describes the book of Romans as neither a systematic theology nor a summary of Paul's life work, but it is by common consent his masterpiece. It dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer sides, and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach. What nobody doubts is that we are here dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge while offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. Several of the chapters of Romans, including the ones which we've uh, heard from today, are focused on the assurance of the recipients of that epistle that salvation and freedom from sin is secured through their faith in Jesus Christ. For Paul, at least according to Protestant interpretation, faith is the route to whatever it is that salvation is. And the importance of that faith alone, that sola fide, is also apparent in our verses from chapter 8 today. Faith not only directs us to salvation, but it can and does also direct our inner thoughts and desires into prayers those thoughts that we cannot express on our own accord. So what is prayer? Prayer is something that makes up our life as a church and as a worshipping community. We've prayed several times this morning and we will pray again before we leave. Prayer is something that perhaps we do quietly at home. Prayer is perhaps something that some of us have a negative response to. Perhaps we've grown up in or been a part of churches that prayer has been used as a weapon as a tool to manipulate and to coerce. Perhaps we've been told that if we don't pray enough, we're not good enough Christians, 
that we don't talk to God daily, so therefore, how can we be following God's command? Prayer is a mixed bag, and it's something that I struggle with. Prayer is also something that is noted a lot in contemporary culture. It comes up a lot in songs and in literature. It comes up in movies and in TV. Um, some examples that popped into my well, one example in particular was Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. We all know that one. But also, perhaps less familiar to some of you this morning, is uh, a song that's recently been released by an artist called Kesha. Now, Kesha is a pop uh, musician. Some would not call her a musician, particularly in my household. But uh, I will refer to her as a pop musician. Um, and she recently uh, recorded a song called Praying. Now, I'm going to read you some of the lyrics from uh, that song. And I'm going I'm to ask you to think whether this resembles your understanding of what prayer might be. So just think amongst yourselves. I hope you're somewhere praying, praying. I hope your soul is changing, changing. I hope you find your peace, falling on your knees, praying. Oh, sometimes I pray for you at night. Someday, maybe you'll see the light. Oh, some say in life, you're going to get what you give. But some things only God can forgive. Now, I think on face value, you listen to that song, and if you understand the, the backstory at all, it, the, the artist in question, she has gone through some legal troubles recently, and there were claims of assault. Um, and so this is very much her trying to wrestle through those feelings and from a, from a Christian background and trying to figure out what on earth she's supposed to do with all of this, perhaps in a similar way to which we're getting described in Romans, but she doesn't seem to have the words. She's trying to vocalize this in a way that makes sense to her. It's interesting though, isn't it? There's parts of this that deeply resonate. I hope your soul is changing. I hope you find your peace falling on your knees. Don't we all seek that element of change and peace when we pray? An element that when we're communicating with God, when we're on our knees or figuratively or, or physically, that something is happening within us. And that perhaps those that we're praying for are also changing. But the, the last line strikes me as hard to hear. But some things only God can forgive. If we're to believe what Luke says in his gospel, then if we don't forgive people, they are not forgiven. So prayer is an interesting discussion. It's an interesting topic. It's something that we wrestle with as Christians as to how to do it and, and, and why to do it. Have you ever felt hungry and not known what to eat? I get this a lot, especially if you're out and about and you're walking around and you're trying, like, oh, what do I fancy? And then you're in, you're in Pret and they've got like nine million different types of special vegan something or other. And I have absolutely no idea what it what is that I want to eat at that moment in time. But perhaps what is being described in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8 is more akin to feeling that you have an unsettled stomach, and forgive me for this analogy, and not knowing whether you need to eat or something else. That's how this sentence is written in the original Greek. This is not about not knowing how to pray, but not knowing what to pray for at all. What Paul is clear on, however, is not the feeling behind the figurative unsettled stomach, but rather on what happens next. These verses in Romans aren't a tutorial on the best way to pray. We actually have that in the Lord's Prayer, which we've said this morning together, and we sang together a rearrangement of that. I don't know if you noticed, but in that hymn that we sang before the second reading, that's a rearrangement of the, the Lord's Prayer. 
What Paul gives us in Romans is an indication that the Spirit is joining with us and interceding for us in a relationship that, if you think about it, is incredibly one-sided, but very much to our benefit. It's true, isn't it, that prayer can often feel like a one-way street up a particularly steep hill. I've recently committed myself to intentionally and physically setting aside time a week to pray, not because I can claim any superiority of virtuousness, but because it always feels like such an uphill struggle. But I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves is, why bother if the Spirit is going to do it for you? I mean, if we, you can read Paul's work in a certain way and says, well, don't worry, it doesn't matter if you don't know what to say, the Spirit's got it down, he's got it bagged, crack on with your life and the Spirit's going to be there for you, it's absolutely fine. But then, must there not be something in the act of working together in partnership, in the same way that we are called to act with Christ in the world today? We could just sit around and wait until the end times, whatever and whenever they may be, but that's not the type of relationship we have embarked on with Christ. As it says in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called together for his purpose. Now, it's here that Paul also adds in a layer of argument. It's not that just the Spirit intercedes for us in the present. The past tells the same story of God's intention for Christ to be first born within a large family. And that's in verse 29. A family that includes us. The word that would be translated in that text as predestined actually very rarely appears in the New Testament. It appears in Acts once, Romans once, and 1 Corinthians once, and twice in Ephesians. In both Acts and 1 Corinthians, it refers to the events of Christ's death and resurrection, testifying that they unfolded according to God's plan. In Ephesians and Romans, the word describes the Gentiles' eventual inclusion among the people of God as having been planned. In both cases, the word points to God always having had something beyond wrath in mind for sinners and the decaying creation of which they, or rather we, are a part. In Romans 5, Paul had drawn a parallel between Adam and Christ. As sin had come into the world through one man, Adam, so righteousness came through one man, Christ. The verse 29 in chapter 8 in Romans may echo the creation story again when it speaks of recipients of God call, God's call being conformed to the image of his son. Humans had been made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. So now God is working out the plan by which humans are recreated in that image, which has been perfectly reflected in God's son, Jesus. Now, the authors of the books which make up our New Testament had a certain penchant for utilizing the Hebrew scriptures to affirm their worldview as newly interpreted through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This was actually a perfectly common practice, and the Jewish people had been doing it for centuries before, retelling stories familiar to, to all with a new Yahweh-focused slant. Much of the Hebrew scriptures, including the story of the flood and the creation narrative, all have basis in other well-known uh, current myths of the time. Paul and the other authors of the New Testament were not corrupting the truth or trying to rework it so it would fit their new narrative. They were engaging in a long practice tradition of reimagining God's interaction with humanity for the context they found themselves in and with the truth that had been revealed to them at that time. Now, this was incredibly alien to us and perhaps even manipulative. 
but our static approach to scripture would feel incredibly alien and even barren to them. So it's not unusual, therefore, that Paul draws reference from Psalm 44 and incorporates it into his defense of the evolution of the Jewish faith into a Christocentric movement. And that was the psalm that Andrea also read to us this morning. And it's one of those psalms that you know from the very beginning that it's going to be a tough listen. It doesn't really let up throughout the duration. So this psalm that we heard this morning, uh, and which Paul is referring, is, as I just mentioned, formidably depressing. And after 20 or so verses of lament with the occasional praise offering to the Lord, it finishes with these final verses. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For we sink down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That, to me, sounds a little bit familiar with what Paul is trying to describe in his uh, work in Romans in the verses that we read today. Trying to grapple with this feeling of overwhelming loss, pain, anguish, not even knowing what any of that is, and, and trying to wrestle with it, offer it to God in some way. Now, the Psalms are verbalizing those feelings, but what Paul is talking about here is when you can't even do that, when you feel so stuck and so lost and so unable to offer anything, it's just groans. Whilst we struggle not only with prayer, but the shackles of a life filled with affliction and oppression, inequality and broken justice, poverty and famine, Paul reminds us that it is through the Spirit and Christ that we are not only able to commune with the divine, even when we can or perhaps do not wish to do so. He takes the narrative in Psalm 44 and chooses to look at it through the lens of Christ, which can only leave us with the final verses of our reading from Romans today. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul's commentary to the psalm, a dramatic reimagining of a broken, hurting world in communion and direct communication with the divine. Just let that settle in, sink in for a moment. Direct communication. This is not some intercessory channel. This is not, please wait, you're on hold, you're important, your call is very important to us. This is direct communication with the divine as brought about through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and as experienced through Paul's own conversion and life. These final verses are about an unbreakable bond with the Trinity, which according to Paul, supersedes the previous bond experienced by the Jews through the covenant that even when we have no words to communicate, or even the desire to communicate them, it remains completely unbreakable. Through groans, through weeping, through joyous praise, through atheism, through Islam, all through Christ we remain in constant communion with the divine who creates and sustains us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And we come now to offer our prayers. Almighty God, three in one, we are here this morning for you. 
We take time now to pray for those around us here at Bloomsbury and in your wider world. We think of our church family, for Barbara and Brenda, for Ruth and Ian, for Nickwith, who will be traveling to Israel and Palestine, and others who we can acknowledge in the silence now. Family is a gift, sometimes one that causes strife. We pray for our own families, both biological and ones that we have chosen, wherever they are and whatever they are experiencing. We pray for God's presence amongst them and amongst us. And we think of the family of Charlie Gard and all those who have been affected either directly by his suffering and loss or by the media's relentless hounding. Lord, your creation was created holy, ordained by you, and we are told this through your scriptures. We pray for compassion when your creation has fallen from that perfect ordination. We pray for the violent clash in Hackney linked to the death of Rashan Charles, a black 20-year-old man. Our times still feel unsettled, Lord. Our lands are still full of race riots and racism. Racism still plagues our streets and our laws. We pray for justice. For Israel and Palestine, for the uneasy sense of peace that has rested there since last week and the removal of the metal detectors at the entrance to the Alaska Mosque and the Temple Mount. We pray for peace. News of terrorism still fills our screens and our papers. Australia, the US, Central Europe. It is alarming that these attacks have become so common. We pray for a world without fear. And we choose to pray for parts of the world that don't often make it to our attention. The floods in Nigeria, the removal of Pakistan's prime minister from power. We pray for accountability and viewability. For international relations and our world leaders who guide and make those decisions. For Brexit, for the European Union, the Trump administration's relationship with North Korea, Iran and Russia. We pray for wisdom. And Lord, whilst this prayer has been full of words, we pray for those now who have the words not to say, that cannot express what needs to be prayed for, the yearning, the aching, the groaning of their souls. We offer these prayers now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.